You're listening to IEPs and More with Kathy Greco. Answering your questions and talking to parents and professionals in the field of care and education of kids and young adults. Today's program is part one of Kathy speaking with Anne Suramelli. Anne is both the mother of a son with special educational needs, as well as having experience directing a nonprofit organization benefiting students with needs. Today, she'll be sharing her personal story, as well as her take on the five stages of grief when you learn your child has special needs. Okay, um, I don't know if you know too much about um, me, but I'm an attorney and I represent kids with special needs. And I have dedicated my practice to that for about 15, 17 years, I don't, quite a while. Mm-hmm. And I facilitate a parent group the first Wednesday of every month where parents can come talk, ask IEP questions, and really have some camaraderie where they don't feel so alone in this whole process. And I've known Lori. I grew up with Lori. I, <laughs> I grew up at Ray's Bakery. I lived in College View. So I, I've known her. I knew her dad longer than I knew her from when I was little, little. So in talking to her the other day, she suggested that you are a phenomenal speaker and provide amazing information for parents, for professionals, for anybody interested in understanding the grief process in in being a parent with a kid with needs. And so I, I just would like you to talk a little bit about that. I'd like to know um, your, first of all, like your family background, what, what happened? How did it all come to be, Anne? Yeah. How did I get into this world, right? This place. Um, first of all, thanks Kathy for inviting me. And, and I too, am a huge Lori Gobi fan. So we're, we have that mutual admiration society going. I have three sons, three adult sons, and my middle son, Matthew, was diagnosed at five years and 11 months with having uh, autism and what was then called mental retardation, which we now call intellectual disability. I started talking to doctors when he was 18 months old. Can I ask you how old he is now? He's 36. Oh, wonderful. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. And so I started talking um, to doctors when he was 18 months old saying things were just a little off. Um, I'm one of many siblings. My husband is one was one of many siblings raised around a lot of kids with a lot of different abilities and challenges. And we just had never known anybody like Matthew and our older son did not have any of those issues. So it was like something's not quite right here, but pediatricians really didn't understand as much as they have come to understand about uh, those disabilities then as they know now. And so I was told, oh, he's a boy. Boys are slower. Don't worry about it. You worry too much, blah, 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 blah. And a, a series of doctors told us that in a variety of different locations. Finally, um, when he was ready to start, he went to preschool and was, it was not the best experience, a, a, a regular preschool. They worked with him, but it was a challenging time. Let's put it that way. We then went to grade school. He was going to go to kindergarten and I talked Can I to ask something? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but were there behavioral challenges in these environments? 
Typically with Matthew, it wasn't behavior. He was exceptionally quiet, very, um, you know, he would sit in a corner by himself, you know, all those very stereotypical things about autism where they are in their own world. Um, we were very fortunate and one of the, which also was one of the reasons he was not diagnosed so young is he had language early and he, and he, he like didn't speak baby talk. He spoke in sentences almost from the beginning. And he was, he spoke very grammatically correct. It wasn't like me want cookie. It was like, I want a cookie, you know? And it was like, so, so th that's one of the reasons I had a doctor flat out tell me he can't have autism because he has, because he has speech. So it's, it's impossible. And so, uh, which again, just not an understanding of it. Um, as he was going to go into kindergarten, I talked to the kindergarten teacher because I knew her and she said, give him to me for two weeks and I'll let you know if I think there's something more than just a, a typically developing kid that might have a few issues. She called me at the end of a week and said, I think you're right. Could I refer him to be assessed for special education services? I said, yes, please, anything. And that began us down the journey. And so at five years and 11 months, he was diagnosed by an outside psychologist, not a school psychologist. We were also referred through regional center. And so he was diagnosed with autism and, uh, as I said, intellectual disability, um, then known as mental retardation. And that started us down the road of special ed and, and all that. And so he was in special ed classes, kindergarten through second grade. From third grade on, he was in a fabulous public school setting where they had what they called a learning center. So he was in a gen ed classroom and pulled out for certain services to the learning center. And that was third through K, uh, third through eighth grade. Um, high school, he went to a gen ed high school with special ed classes and some gen ed classes. And then for 18 to 22, he did a, uh, what, what we call a transition 18 to 22 transition program, which was exclusively students with special needs because of course, his peers had moved on at that point to college or um, something after high school. Um, so he did not receive a high school diploma. He received a certificate of completion, which then allowed him to continue to receive special education services to age 22. Um, but he has always amazed us. And I, I always tell people I would have slept a whole lot better when he was seven and eight and nine if I'd known his ability level was going to go to where it's gone. I would say he's developmentally around 10 to 12 years old, which from a kid who, who could speak but wouldn't speak when he started kindergarten, he would only make little guttural sounds to when he graduated from eighth grade, was voted by his typically developing peers as the friendliest boy in the class. That's a big <laughs> Isn't jump. that wonderful? Big jump. He worked really, really hard. Yeah. So... Obviously, it's not the it's not the road we would have chosen for him, but he has made the most of the road that he's been given, and we are very grateful for that, and very grateful for all the professionals along the way who've helped him as he's as he's gone down that road. When you say from kindergarten he he wasn't speaking, was he speaking at home, just not at school? Yes. Yes. He so when he, when he would come home, he would still talk to you like he had always talked to you. Correct. But it was the fear factor, especially with a person with autism. Fear is, is just, you know, whatever, I always had to remind myself, whatever terrifies me, magnify that a thousand times and you might be close to what Matt's going through. So just being at school, being with different people. And he, he just would make these little guttural sounds. 
and fabulous kindergarten teacher who happened to have a speech background. And she did wonders with him. By the end of the year, he was talking a little bit in class. Part of his thing is he's a Disney person, loves Disney, everything Disney. And so he would use Disney, what we call at home, we call Disney talk, Disney speak, to speak. Several years later, he was introduced to a friend of my husband's, a work friend. And he doffed, like he was doffing a cap and kind of bowed a little bit and said, a very good day to you. Well, it's not your typical greeting, but it is a greeting. Yes. And I knew it was from Mickey's Christmas Carol. So he had learned to take language from his Disney stories and put them into his own vocabulary. And he, you know, it was a greeting and he was greeting someone a little bit more formal than we normally do these days. But for Dickensian England, it was totally appropriate, you know? So And it was an appropriate greeting for the situation. Yeah, yeah. And so we kind of learned how to do that. But it was, that was a big part of the, the work that the teachers did was try to get him to back off a little on the Disney speak when he would start talking and use Matthew speak, you know, speak for yourself. Um, we've come a long way from that, but we still do have, we still, on any given day, something will, he'll hear a song, he'll hear something and he'll start quoting. I, I once had a, was working with um, a mom and I'll tell you my professional background in a minute, but I was working with a mom who had two children with, on the autism spectrum. And one day she was saying, God, he just talks this nonsense all the time. And I went, oh, no, no, no. There is a reason. Uh, next time he talks nonsense, ask him where it's from, and then try to figure out how you got how you got from whatever you had said to where he got. And one day she calls him up. She goes, "It's Pee Wee's Playhouse. It's Pee Wee's Playhouse." It had something to do with you know Pee Wee and a bike, and I forget that story. But anyway, where Pee Wee somebody somebody Pee Wee loses a bike or his bike gets taken. Anyway, something happened to this kid's bike, and that's why he was spouting this stuff. But it, once you know the connection, it makes perfect sense. You know, so, but I did, I, I hadn't told you about my, my background is when, um, for many, many years, I, you know, obviously my job was to be an advocate for Matthew. I had had a professional career. I'd given that up for a while, was a stay at home mom with all three of my boys and, um, then needed to get back into the work world and was looking for a part-time job that would allow me to basically accommodate Matt's schedule. You know, and at that point I had three kids and my, my motto was three kids, three schools, three schedules. So I was driving around a lot and I needed a job that would facilitate, would allow me to do that. And I happened to apply for a part-time administrative job at an organization I'd never heard of. And when I went into interview, they said, well, we work with families who have kids with special needs. And I went, oh, I have one of those. And they went, you do? <laughs> and worked, I was there for 20 years. The last 18 of it, I was the director. So what is the organization? um, This is in Stockton, California, and it's called Family Resource Network. We're part of the statewide network that offers support to families who have children with special needs. Was it housed like in the regional center or as part of the regional center, sort of kind of under the umbrella? Some are. There are a few of them still are. Ours originally was for the first like two years of its life. And then it kind of got up on its own feet and by the time I worked there, which was probably about four or five years into it, um, of the existence, it was a separate standalone, and it has always been since that time. But some, them. yeah, some of them has started under the wing of the regional center. I think there's a, a few that are still there, but most of them are independent nonprofits. 
Yeah, because it, out here we have those obviously with the regional center. And I used to speak to the mm-hmm. parents there. They'd invite me to come speak. And they the offices were always housed in the building of the regional center. That's why I asked. Oh, yeah, because I would say that's at least, especially in Northern California, that's an ex- that would, I, I can't think of one right now in Northern California that's in the regional center. They're all independent nonprofits. So, so. in addition to your own personal experience, Right. With your son, you also had the good fortune of meeting and supporting many families that right. were similarly situated. Yeah. And, and we served five counties, um, some urban, some rural. And it really provided me such a fabulous opportunity to m- meet families, work with families who's had any, a child of any age of any disability. and. It was really, it, it helped me not only, you know, it was, it was so mutually beneficial. Yes, I felt I could help them, provide them with resources, et cetera. But I learned so much from each parent literally every single day that helped me as a parent and helped me help other parents. So it was, it was the perfect job, really, truly the perfect job. Um, I understand what you're saying because I feel the same way. Yeah. Everybody has something to offer and teach me. Just because I'm a lawyer doesn't mean anything. So the exposure is really wonderful, gives you the depth. Absolutely. And it was through um, the first time you mentioned earlier, um, talking about the grief cycle, um, the the emotions that parents go through when they have a child with special needs. About a year after Matthew was diagnosed, one of his teachers handed me a flyer and she says, I don't really know too much about this, but there's this guy coming to speak. And I live in the Central Valley in Stockton and she said, there's this guy coming to speak in, in the East Bay. It's about supporting parents, especially its kids. And I went, and his name, I don't know if you're familiar with him. His name is Ken Moses. He's out of Illinois. He is, <laughs> he does, he didn't like it when I, I would call him, I got to know him a little bit. I always call him the guru of grief. He doesn't like that. <laughs> so now I, you're the guru of grief. Right. Well, and so I basically, so when I talk about grief, I'm basically talking about, I've taken Ken Moses' basic information and expanded on that. He is a psychologist out of Illinois, um, unfortunately doesn't really travel too much anymore. Um, I had the privilege of seeing him and getting to meet him three different times over the years, which was fabulous for me because not only he's just a wealth of information, but as I was traveling down this cycle of grief and and, and feeling different emotions, I was at three very different places in the times when I saw him. The The first time, you know, Matthew had only been diagnosed about a year and I was feeling all those first time emotions, you know, and it was it was really challenging. And to hear him talk about it, because he is a professional who's worked in that field for many years. And then he and his wife had their second child who was born with disabilities. So he became a parent as well as having been a professional in the field for many years. To hear him talk about these things, these emotions that parents go through. And I thought, this is, ex- I, I, re- I, have, I told him later, I said, were you looking through our living room window? Because he knew exactly what I said. He knew exactly what my husband said. He knew how I responded. He knew how my husband responded. And he's telling these stories up on a stage. And I'm thinking, he was looking through our window. He knew exactly what happened. And what he helped me realize is what seemed so abnormal to us, we were handling it in the normal way. And that was very 
liberating in a way. Can you tell me about those emotions? Exactly. He takes the, um, the cycle of grief that Elizabeth Kubler Ross wrote about with, um, the whole cycle of grief in terms of bereavement when someone has, has passed and he applies it to the emotions that you go through when you have a child with special needs. For example, the first emotion is always denial. There's nothing wrong with my kid. He's fine. You know? And he talks about the fact that, you know, in general, society views denial as a negative. Oh, she's so in denial. Uh, uh. What he explains is it is normal. Denial is a normal state. It's the way of your brain kind of catching up with what is going on in reality. The concern that Dr. Moses and others would have is if a person stays there too long, arrests, if you will, in denial. The child has been having problems for years and years, and the parent is still saying, oh, he's fine, you know, whatever. But he, he totally gets it. And that I, I would always recommend if he if you Google Ken Moses, the first thing that will come up is his article that he's written, which it, it is only like eight pages. Um, it's called, I always have to write it down. It's called the, the Impact of Childhood Disability, colon, The Parent Struggle. The Impact of Childhood Disability, The Parent Struggle, Ken Moses. If you look it up, it'll come up because so many places have it posted on their website. It is the definitive article on it. And it's like eight pages long. He doesn't extrapolate into all these things. It's so concise. It's so precise that it is, it is really phenomenal. And his whole thing is when he says, you know, it's okay to be in denial, not forever in a day, but it's okay because it's allowing the brain to kind of come to terms with what lies ahead. The other thing that he always talks, like I was, I'd have to say for myself, I was over denial long ago and far away. I was not, I didn't, you know, probably by the time he was three, I knew something was wrong. So I was well past it. I was looking for answers and couldn't right. find Your them. mission at that point was to right. get help. Right. I wasn't the one in denial. <laughs> Some of the doctors might've been. No disrespect to the doctor. When Matthew was diagnosed in 1990, the occurrence of autism in the population was roughly one in 10,000. Right. Where it's now one in 54. You right. can talk to any pediatrician today and they can expand, expand. No, what do I want to say? Anyway, they can speak um, in great detail about autism. In 1990, I definitely knew more than most doctors did. And I was asking them about Asperger's and they said, I don't know what you're talking about and different things. Um, not that Matt had it, but just in terms of, I was saying, compare what he has to Asperger's. And they're like, what's Asperger's, you know? And they're going and looking it up in the physician's desk. And ESM. ESM, I think it was three or four at that time, probably three. And so I realized that I had, I knew more than they did. Again, no knock on it. I just knew more than they did. And so I had to find people who knew and could help Matt. And so so I wasn't in denial. I was past that. But the next thing that that next emotion that Dr. Moses talks about is anxiety. And he says, that's not really even strong. If he uses the word fear or terror. Okay. And that's where I was. I always say there are three things that we, that as parents, we fear. We fear what we know. We fear what we don't know. And we fear what we believe to be true. Okay. So I, okay. I fear what I knew. Matthew had autism. We knew that it was terrifying. 
I feared what I did not know. I had no idea what the future held for him. Because especially in 1990, if you went to the library, we didn't really have even really much have the internet. If you went to the library and looked up autism, tried to find anything with autism, if they had any books at all, they were ancient. For example, there was something in a book I did find that said, if a child is not diagnosed by age six, there is no hope for recovery. Well, that is totally and completely false, but it's still in a, you know, it's in a book in the library and you think, well, you know, what do they know? I mean, they, they must know what they're doing. They got a book published and it's in the library. Correct. And then if you realize over time that that's wrong. But so fear over what I knew, I knew I had autism, fear over what I didn't know. I didn't know what the future held because there was so little out there about the diagnosis and fear over what I believed to be true. And professionals, for professionals, that's, I think, the hardest thing because they have no idea what's in my mindset, right? What, and at that point, what did you believe to be true? Part of what my big fear was, I was fearful of institutionalization because I was actually suggested to me and I, I actually did go look at a developmental center. I was, it was suggested that I go look at it. And I, I did go there and I just thought, you know, most of them are closed now or significantly um, it's not the issue that it used to be, but it was like, I was terrified of institutionalism. I was terrified when I, I was actually going for a meeting, we had met with this psychologist, a psychiatrist, actually child psychiatrist. And he is the one that had suggested that I go look at developmental center. And I was having a follow a, a final meeting with him where he was going to give me his diagnosis and what it was recommendation was. And I took Matthew by myself. My husband was working and I thought in my mind, I hadn't told my husband in my mind, I thought, if he says, you know, we're going to, we think Matthew needs to be institutionalized. I thought, I've got my credit card. I've got Matt. I've got a full tank of gas. We are hitting the road. Nobody's taking my kid. Nobody wanted to take my kid. You know, they, that was not his You didn't know that. I didn't know that. And I believed it to be true. And so, you know, was I as forthright with information? Maybe I was, maybe I wasn't. I really can't remember. But all I remember is the terror of walking into that office and thinking, be prepared for the worst. And what's your exit plan? You know, and so that's why I always say to professionals, it's so hard for you to know because you have an educated background. You know what's out there. A lot of us parents don't come from this field. We have nothing. A lot of us only know things that we've seen in horrible movies, and um, or or story. You know, everybody's everybody. Once you once you have a child with disability, you should say everybody. You should never speak in generalities. But many people feel free to share terrible stories with you. I'm not saying it's going to happen to you, but I know somebody, or my sister's friend's cousin's niece's stepsister had this and you suddenly, and they just, it's like, you know, or you go on the internet and you read these horrible stories and it, and it terrifies you and professionals don't realize that parents walking into, let's say perhaps their first um, individualized education plan meeting, IEP meeting, they're walking in there with all this stuff in their head that may be completely false. Nobody wanted to institutionalize Matt, but I didn't know that at the time. And my fear was very real. So that's, Dr. Moses talks about that as being an overwhelming, one of the overwhelming emotions is fear. And then he talks about, you know, okay, as you're working your way through the cycle of denial, fear, you, then you get to anger. And anger can be extremely strong emotion. But what I always tell families is, can you use that anger for good? Like Star Wars, can you use the force for good and not evil? 
And I've seen tremendous things that parents have done because they were ticked off. I've seen parents work with legislators and get laws changed. I've seen parents work with medical professionals and get institutional changes made on how to work with people with developmental disabilities because they were angry at how their child or loved one was treated. So out of anger can come very good things if you can channel that anger into looking for a positive outcome. But again, it is a natural emotion. And I, there's, there's somebody I know right now that's you know new today, a, a little one who's just diagnosed, and they're really struggling with some of the anger issues. And I keep telling her, that's okay. That's normal. Because when we thought about having children, when we prayed to have children, when we dreamed about having children, very few of us dreamt about having a child with special needs. And Ken Moses talks about that. He talks about who did you dream your child was going to be? Who did you dream your child was going to be for you? And you have to come to terms that that child, maybe that dream may come to pass. But like, our, you know, when Matthew was little, you know, when he was teeny tiny, oh, he's going to be quarterback of the 49ers, or he's going to be president of the United States, or he's going to be this, or he's going to be that. Those dreams change over time. The reality is, though, that's the same for parents with typical kids, Absolutely. right? I mean, when, when you look at the big picture, of course, it's far more impacted right. when early on you are faced with a disability. Right. But it, it's almost like you get all these years of parenting smished into exactly. the very beginning. Exactly. And you, you have to cycle through that much quicker than parents with typical kids who participate in that process over time. Right. With my, with my two sons who are typically developing, yes, the, the dream that they wanted to be or the career they wanted to be at three or five is not the career they are now. But over time, their dreams changed and they helped work to, and did work toward making their dream come true. Matthew's dream is, you know, his dreams are very different than his brother's. You know, his dream is to go to Disneyland. His dream is to go to the library and find new books. And so that dream is different. You know, my dream for him at the stage of life I'm at now is about helping him prepare, helping him become as independent as he can be so that when I'm gone, he will have a level of freedom that allows him to do the things he wants to do and to live where he wants to live and be with who he wants to be. Um, so it's a very different kind of dream than I have for his brothers. Yes, I want his brothers to be independent, but they've already grown into that. And so it's that constant changing of the dream. But you're right. You know, we, we knew after a while that his older brother or his older and his younger brother weren't going to be president of the United States and weren't going to be a quarterback of the 49ers. But that was by their choice. And Matthew, the dream was changed. We knew it very early on and we knew it wasn't by his choice. And right. I think that's where the difference comes in, too. But it's all about redefining dreams and finding ways to work through that. and especially. So that so that's kind of what you know Dr. Moses talked about is that 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 the anger is again like all these other emotions like denial, like anxiety, it's okay, but it's how do you use it? And can you move through it? Because there are some people that spend a lot of time in anger. And anger takes so much energy. And so, you know, it's how do you how do you use that energy to better your life, to better your child's life? And what people do you surround yourself with that help make that happen? That's a, a big part of the journey. 
part of the other thing too is working with families in the last 18 months, I'm sure you've seen it. COVID has just thrown, it's thrown obviously the world for a loop. It's thrown typically developing education for a loop. You throw special ed on top of that. You talk about parents' fear factor. It's through the roof. First, there was the whole fear about, you know, are we going to get COVID? Is my child going to bring COVID into the home? Is somebody going to bring COVID into, into my child's life? Now it's like, okay, my kid's been out of school for over a year. How do I assimilate him back in? How do I be part of that? There's all those fear factors. How much has my child lost in terms of skill level? You know, Matthew is the epitome of a use it or lose it kid. He doesn't use a skill, he loses it. And so how do you keep those skills going when school isn't functioning the way you're used to? And I know that's been a a huge, huge challenge and a huge concern for families unique to this time of time of life. Yeah. So the other, other thing that Dr. Moses talks about in terms of emotions is isolation. When you're grieving, you tend to isolate yourself from others. That's why I was so happy to hear that you have this support group for families. I'm a big proponent of support groups. I've run, I ran a weekly one for 18 years. I ran monthly ones periodically. There is something about meeting with people who have a similar experience. We may not all be best friends. We may have different political views or religious views or whatever financial situations, but we have this unifying factor of having this child that we love have some sort of disability or special need. And how do we, how do we as a parent help our child become the best they can be? And that's a very unifying thing when you talk to other families, you know, and so it, it pleases me when you, when you talk about um, having a, a place where parents can meet because physical isolation becomes a big part of it, especially if you have a child who looks physically different or has behaviors that draw attention to themselves. And, you know, there were a lot of years where we didn't go a lot of places with Matt, even though he wasn't yet diagnosed, but we knew he might behave differently. He might, when, you know, when he was talking, he might say something that's inappropriate, you know, cause he would just blurt out things about, you know, someone's physical appearance because right. it wouldn't occur to him that that's not a polite thing to say. And so it's, it can be difficult. There's isolation even within families, generationally. How do you, you know, some people don't, depending on what the disability is, especially it is, we were basically told by some extended relatives that, you know, we needed to discipline him more. If you just discipline him more, he'll be fine. And we kept saying, no, this is not a discipline issue. And, you know, Matthew is, as many people are with autism, they don't eat certain foods. He, has, right. he keeps adding, just a little shout out to those of you who are struggling with a young child who's not eating. I will tell you, he has added many things to his diet over the years. We work on it. We work on it. We work on it. It took me about, I don't know, four or five years to get him to eat grilled cheese sandwiches, but he eats grilled cheese sandwiches now. Just th- simple things like that. And those are victories. And those oh, are victories you have to celebrate. Oh, you better believe it. You better believe it. Um, he ate a peach the other day. He'd never eaten a peach. He didn't like a peach because he didn't like the fuzziness on it. He ate a peach the other day. I practically jumped up and down at the farmer's market because the kid was eating a peach. Part of the thing with, with the isolation is, so we distance ourselves sometimes even from family over those kind of things. That can be a, very, a time of tremendous loneliness. And one of the things, it, it, you know, it can create this division if, you, if you're not on the same page. And, and we had an extended family member that we basically said, this is how we're going to deal with it. And if you're, if you're, you know, like with Matthew eating, 
It's like, I know he won't eat everything that you put on his plate. But from now on, when we come visit, we'll take you out to dinner at a restaurant where he can eat something and you can eat something and we'll pick up the tab. And it was like, great. So from then on, that's what we did. And it worked out super well. And it, it took that whole issue of what he ate or didn't eat off the table, no pun intended, in terms of we're not talking about what he's eating or not eating. We're just sitting around the table, talking, laughing, having this congenial time. And so sometimes it was like, okay, what do we have to do? So we are not isolated. So we're not separated from these people. Right. Um, so it's not only managing your son, it was managing the people that you wanted to be in contact with as well. Really? How do we make everybody comfortable right. in an environment so that we can just be typical? Well, and it's interesting because somebody, I, I had one physician one time say to me, how, he was not Matthew's physician. He was the, actually he was an ophthalmologist. And he learned about my situation and Matthew's situation. And he said, how does having a child like Matthew change your life? And I said, it changes everything. It doesn't just change you know, parenting. It changes how do you parent your other children? How do you explain to a three-year-old that he can't get away with something his six-year-old brother got away with? Because you have to explain to three-year-old because you know better. You know, how do you have different rules in the same household? Because you have to parent based on their ability and their cognition, not on, you know, what, what one gets away with and what the other one does. That's a, that's a tough one. But things even like, I have three boys, so, you know, hand-me-downs, you know, it's great, right? We saved a ton of money on clothes. My oldest son was really into sports. We live in Northern California, so you have a lot of Giants t-shirts and Oakland A's t-shirts and 49ers t-shirts and the occasional Raider t-shirt. So you'd think, okay, now it's Matt's turn. You just put on it. I would, if I'm going to go anywhere outside of our neighborhood, I'm going to go to Target. I'm going to go to the grocery store. I would never put him in a giant shirt or any sports shirt. Cause I was so scared to death that somebody in the checkout aisle might say, Oh, love those giants. Who's your favorite giant player. He would have an absolute meltdown that a stranger had spoken to him because he couldn't do that social conversation. So it becomes, you micromanage every minute of your life because how is this going to affect Matthew? And how is this going to affect his siblings? Because we all are out in public together. And I don't want his siblings to be embarrassed by him. I don't want his siblings to feel like they have to always protect him. So there's that whole issue as well. And so it's, it, it was interesting that it was an ophthalmologist of all people who asked me, how does it affect your life? And I'm like, well, how doesn't it, you know? When it, but you just don't, it's your, it's such your daily life. You just don't even think about it. And we are so fortunate because Matthew does not have health issues. You know, we're not, we're not worried about physical treatments or wheelchairs or oxygen or any of that. That takes you to a whole nother realm of special needs. You know, we, we, we have been spared that for which we are eternally grateful. And he's extremely healthy. So ours was more behavioral and language, how to use language. Um, but it does, all of those things lead to isolation. And so that's why we tried very, very hard to get out in the community and just be on our guard that we may have to make a hasty exit at times, but that's okay. Another, another emotion that Dr. Moses talks about is depression. And the fact that I'm talking more than sadness. I'm talking like literally clinical depression. Not every family has that. Thankfully, thankfully many do not. But I actually worked with a therapist, used to do some, we had funding for counseling for our family. And those days were long over. <laughs> but um, she used to write to me, not about a particular parent, of course, she would never reach that trust. But she would write to me things about trends she is seeing. 
And she said, and she used to, and it was only parents, especially these kids that she was in, um, working with for us. And she said, I am increasingly struck by the degree of depression in at least one of the parents and the effect of that, on, of that depression on the family unit. Huge issue. And so I worked a lot with local mental health professionals about providing resources to families with, um, who have special needs. And even the regional center that we worked with um, had psychologists that they would provide counseling to families regarding special needs, just special needs. Not, you know, not you lost your job. I mean, not, not other things of life, but um, some of those days are gone because of the finances and funding, unfortunately. But Dr. Moses wants professionals to recognize that sometimes that parent that you're talking to, who seems kind of out of it, or what are they, you know, she doesn't seem to be paying attention in the IP meeting, but she's doing, doing her laundry list. No, she, she has had to pull up, put up a barrier because she can't hear it anymore. It's too much for her. And, you know, that flaky, quote unquote, flaky parent may actually be a depressed parent. And that can, that can be a real challenge. And yeah. doing the best they absolutely can Correct. with what's on their plate, right? Correct. And the other thing I, I try to remind professionals all the time is sometimes having a child with special need is not the biggest thing this family is facing, especially in the last 18 months. We've got families who, are, who have lost jobs, are terrified of losing jobs, have lost medical coverage, or are terrified of losing medical coverage, or whatever. And, you know, I, in, in the 2007, 2008, 2009 debacle when the when the whole um economy crashed particularly in stockton god love god love stockton it's had a hard time it's 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 a city that's had a very tough time at one point 60 minutes did a segment on the amount of foreclosures in the city of stockton when you make 60 minutes it's not a good thing i saw the 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 ripple effect of that because so many of our families were renters homeowners perhaps who lost their home or renters who the homeowner the landlord lost the home. And so they were displaced. And we just had this whole ripple effect that lasted for years on that. And talk about depression. Some of these families went into serious, serious issues. And, and thankfully, we were able to connect them with um, some counseling services. But so Dr. Moses talks about that. He talks about guilt. Guilt. We all know. Everybody, every parent knows guilt. Any parent of any child of any age of any ability knows guilt. Because kids are really good about making sure you feel guilty that you didn't buy them the right tennis shoes or you didn't give them the latest technological device or whatever. That's just the way it goes. It's, it's one of those things where, again, he says it is a normal feeling to feel guilt. But what what would, would a parent feel guilt about in relationship to a kid with needs? Uh, a variety of things. Either doing something that caused the disability. I had a parent just about, she was, she had a parent of a two-year-old and her two-year-old had some speech delays and she called me and, and we talked about how to refer her to what in California we call the early start program. So she could be served either through the regional center or the school district and for possible speech services. And she said, you know how, when you're talking to somebody, you just get the sense you're not getting, they're not. And I said, just, I said, just tell me whatever you think you need to tell me. And she said, well, I did drugs when I was pregnant. She goes, I wasn't an addict, but I did drugs. And that probably caused his speech delay. I said, we don't know that. Please, please do not guilt yourself into that. I said, there are many, many kids who have speech delay that their parents, there was absolutely, they got premier prenatal care. I said, please don't do that to yourself. And even if for some reason it did, 
you can't undo what you can't undo that. All you can do is help him move forward. And you will, because you've already taken the first step. You've already made the first call. She'd already come out of denial. She knew there was something wrong. She just didn't know where to go to find help. And we helped her do that. But so it's, it's guilt over those kind of things. Or I have families who would say to me, well, my child has such and such disorder. It's a genetic disorder. It's me. I caused it because I'm the, as if we have somehow control over our genes. But, they're, but that's a very powerful guilt thing, they feel. Sometimes it's things like me. You know, I felt guilt because I listened to those doctors who told me he was fine when I knew he wasn't. I knew he wasn't. But I'd come back from a meeting and I'd say, well, this doctor says he's fine. So I guess I don't need to call any more doctors. And a few months later, I'd go call another doctor. But I remember saying to my husband at one point, you know, talking about guilt. And I said, you know, they told me he was fine. And so I I stopped looking for, for answers for a while. And he said to me, they told us what we wanted to hear. And it's okay. You know, we got him the help. He got the help eventually. It wasn't that we did anything wrong. We didn't do anything wrong. Nobody did anything wrong. The doctors didn't do anything wrong. They told us what they knew at the time. Well, you know, I experienced that quite a lot with my work as well, Mm -hmm. because unfortunately, IEP teams in this area, I am sure in every area, hold meetings, look at parents, tell them how wonderful their kid is, proceed to talk in acronyms, IEP. BIP that parents don't understand. They listen to these people where they're fully intimidated because it's one little parent who doesn't know anything except for their kid. They are sitting in what they deem to be a room of professionals who have their child's best interest at heart. And then you you get to sixth grade and your kid can't read and your kid can't do many of the things that you had heard all these years that your kid could do. And parents come to me and they'll say, like, I I have so much guilt. I feel so badly that we didn't recognize this before. That we and I do say exactly what you say. The past is the past. This is where we are. And you have to be grateful. I'm grateful to you that you're here now. And how do we help your child going forward? Exactly right. And my thing is, part of what I learned, and for the most part, we had really good IEP experiences, but also I learned early on that I needed to learn the law. So I, you know, long before I ever had any association with the Family Resource Network, I already had the Ed Code book, the actual Ed Code book, and had read it cover to cover and highlighted different things. Because Matthew was is served by the regional center system. And when I was talking to one day to our his caseworker, she said, Well, do you know Ed Code? And I went, well, you know, no, I'm sure there is some. I'm guessing Sacramento has some sort of code, but no, I don't know Ed Code. And she brought me a copy. 20 minutes later, she was at my door with a copy of Ed Code. And I read that thing cover to cover and, and went, What? He's entitled to what? And so so even before I worked for the regionals or worked for Family Resource Network, I'm just having an association with the regional center. I learned to become proficient in the law. Not a lawyer, never claimed to be one, will never have that skill. But I know how to read a code book and I know what Matthew can do. But part of the thing is, just to your point of learning the lingo. So I spent my 20 years at Family Resource Network. I did IEP trainings at least once a month. 
um, all over our five county area, sometimes outside of the five county area, if somebody would ask me to come and do it. Because exactly to, to your point, you know, they use all these initials, stop the meeting and say, I'm sorry, could you please define that for me? And that was very humbling for me because I'm, I'm one of those people that always tries to read up and know things. So to sit in a meeting where they're using all these acronyms, especially before I ever heard of ed code, I didn't want to admit to them. I didn't, they're talking about my kid. I didn't want to admit to them that I didn't know what they were saying. And I remember they used the term pervasive developmental disorder, which is on the autism spectrum. Well, the psychologist, the psychiatrist had not used that term. He used the term autism. So they used this term pervasive developmental disorder. And I remember stopping them and saying, I know what the word pervasive means. I know what the word developmental means. And I know what the word disorder means, but I don't know what pervasive developmental disorder means. Can you please define that for me? And that was a big leap for me because I would never like to show that I was ignorant in something regarding my son. It's okay to be vulnerable and to say, I don't know what that means. I tell parents that all the time and they're not expected to know. And at the same time, when I speak to classes of young adults who are getting their master's or going through getting their special ed credential and or teachers, I explain to them because they're not doing anything to make a parent feel ignorant. That's the language they're comfortable with. So they don't realize they're speaking in shortcut and the parents lost. Right. And I, and I knew I had kind of gone to the dark side one day when I was in a meeting and I used, I I used a sentence that was all acronym. And I went, Oh my God, I've just become like the, the people that I thought I never would become. But I was in a, in a room where that, those acronyms were all understood by everybody. And that'll do it for part one of Kathy's talk with Ann Chiramelli. To hear the rest of the conversation, look for part two wherever you download podcasts. You've been listening to IEPs and more with Kathy Greco. If you have questions, guest suggestions, or comments, you can reach out to Kathy at kathy at grecoadvocacy.com. No part of this podcast can be reused or rebroadcast without written consent. Copyright 2021 IEPs and more. Thanks for listening.